Well, church, um, a familiar passage to some of you, maybe a new passage to others. But for all of us, my goal this morning is this, that after our time together in First and Second Peter, that we will all walk away being politically correct Christians, okay? It's my goal. All of us will be, polit- so some of you are like, check please, you know, and you're, you're already out, just, uh, great, you laughed, I got your attention, that's what I was meaning to do. Um, the term politically correct has had a number of meanings over the years. It was first introduced into our culture in the late 1700s, and it's meant many things, um, maybe some of which you would affirm and some of which you would not affirm over the years, but, but here's, what, here's what I'm meaning when I'm talking about this idea of politically correct Christians, wanting us to be politically correct Christians. Christians who have a biblically correct view, a biblically correct view of government and politics, and live with a biblical wisdom as citizens under their particular government. This is true for Christians under any system of government, including ours. The wisdom that um, Peter shares with us this morning on this topic, he shares as a Roman citizen. At this moment, Peter's a Roman citizen, which means he is under a form of government that, well, is uh, politically very powerful and contentious and corrupt. That was the Roman system of government. One of the most powerful and contentious and corrupt in the history of the world, in fact. Where uh, the dictator thought he was God, um, with a lowercase g. Maybe he thought it was an uppercase g. And, and many of the citizens in his empire believed he was. Could you imagine if that was true in ours? It was in the midst of an empire where any kind of dissent was, was crushed immediately with the might of the world's leading superpower and where a third of the citizens of that or the people in that culture were slaves. I mean, this was a very oppressive form of government. It was very corrupt. It was very contentious. They had all of the political and governmental problems that we have and then some. And I say this this morning to remind us that Peter is going to share some wisdom with us this morning, and he's going to share it as a citizen of a culture and of an empire that is much more oppressive than the one that we live under. And so that's just some, some context this morning for, for, for who's sharing and, and where he's sharing from in terms of his political or his governmental context. But in light of that, we might be asking the question, so what, what can we as American Christians learn from Peter who was a Roman Christian? What can we learn as people who live under an American democracy from someone that lived under a Roman, for lack of a better term, dictatorship? And I think there's a number of things, and the first one can be found in verses 13 to 14, where it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. I think the first thing we learned this morning is that wisdom says to submit to our government as much as we can to submit to our government as much as we can. I'm going to say something that's going to strike many of you, but I believe it's biblically true that submission should be the default posture toward our government. Submission should be the default posture toward our government, toward those who are at the top, the emperor, Peter says, which in our context is probably our president, and more and more presidents are acting that way today, aren't they, right? So there's the emperor, that they're at the top. There's the governor, that's sort of the mid-level, right? And it also says every human institution. So it's all the way down to most local. I think we've learned over the last few years that all politics is local, haven't we? 
what Peter is saying is to be subject to government, the, the submission is our default position to the ones at the top, the ones in the middle, and all the way down to like the HOA, right? Your friendly neighborhood Irvine Homeowners Association, right? Right, all politics is local, and it gets local, right? And it gets real when they drive around, roll down their window, look with the clipboard. I know who they are, you know. They drive around my neighborhood, and when they do, I'm always like, hey, see my grass? It looks great, you know, and just trying to paint the pretty picture. Look, I understand that this is fundamentally against our DNA as Americans, this idea of our default posture being submission to our government, this is fundamentally against our DNA as Americans because we live in a country that was founded because of an unwillingness to submit to a government, a government that we thought was oppressive. So our default posture toward government is resistance, not submission. And look, I get it. I was thinking, it's God's sense of humor that I am teaching this sermon. I mean, if I were to ever get a tattoo, maybe in the top five could be like the don't tread on me tat, you know, flag along my back or something like that. Like that, that just, that resonates with me, this idea that I want to resist governments, especially corrupt ones, and everyone is. So as I'm saying this, I, I understand, I'm saying it to a, a, a congregation filled with people that, that are Americans and literally part of our, our national DNA, it, from the day we're born, it fights against this idea. But as American Christians, we actually have a new DNA. We are, listen to me, this is, this is important, we are Christian Americans, we are not American Christians. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are Christian Americans, not American Christians. And whenever you hear people talk about this, this concept, they always use the term, well, American Christians. And that, that's wrong. It's Christian Americans. We are Christians first, and then we are Americans. And trust me, I, like many of you, probably most of you, I am very glad that I'm American. I am so thankful that I'm American, and I would rather be an American than anything. But I am a Christian, and I would much rather be that than anything. Amen? And so we are Christian Americans, not American Christians. We have a new DNA that would allow us to have this kind of default posture. Wayne Grudem says it this way, this is the Christian's responsibility toward all, toward all forms of rightful human authority, whether the individual Christian agrees with all the policies of that authority or not. And that is a tough one to swallow. That's why I believe Peter says, for the Lord's sake. Listen, we aren't looking to be submitted to our government for our government's sake. Like Peter's government had proven that they don't deserve that. And our government, frankly, has proven it doesn't deserve that. Every government has proven the government doesn't deserve for us to be submitted to it for the government's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. And what Peter's doing here is Peter is using theological grounds for his argument, not national grounds for his argument, not political grounds for his argument. He's using theological grounds for his argument. And you might be saying, well, what does that even mean? What does it even mean to be submitted to every human institution for the Lord's sake? I think it means a few things. I think there's a few specific things in the context of this passage that we can find in the end of verse 14 where it says, sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What does it mean for the Lord's sake? For the sake of the order that the Lord wants in the world. I believe that's the first thing we can see even in context. For the sake of the order that God wants in the world. 
Our God is a God of order. Have you noticed that? From everything in creation to the way he made our bodies to the way that everything is set up to the way that he tells us to govern our homes and our churches. I mean, our God is a God of order. And he has been from the beginning. If you read the creation account, it was done in a specific order that only works by the laws of physics and everything that's included. Our God is a God of order. Order is pleasing to him. And it's pleasing for God to hold all things together, as it says in Colossians 1, in the order that he has ordained. For his glory and for our good, our God is a God of order. And sin causes disorder. Sin is the thing that causes things to go from order to disorder. And the more sin that's in the world, the more it goes from order to disorder. And eventually, if it is unchecked, if sin is unchecked, it will go from order to disorder to anarchy. Imagine our communities in our country without any order where it was a complete free-for-all. Imagine that. Actually, you don't have to imagine. It was called CHOP, right? It was, it's called CHAZ. Wonderful place to raise a family and grow your kids. Probably a great spot to hunker down and start a business. Or maybe a great place to, you know, retire. A little quiet, safe place to retire and just kind of be on your own. Right? Like we have seen what happens when, when there's no order. There are two specific ways God keeps some degree of order in the world through government. And Peter tells us. Peter says through punishment and through praise. And this is really interesting. And I'm, I'm, trying, I'm, 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 I'm trying not to be political this morning. I just want to be biblical. And I want to tell you, Peter uses these words biblically, punishment and praise. Peter does not say like reformation and something else. He says punishment and praise. Punishing evil... Not just reforming it. I want you to hear me clearly. This is not a political statement. This is a biblical statement. Punishing evil, not just reforming it, which means it can be reformed. There are reforms that can happen. But punishing evil, not just reforming it, is part of God's design from the Bible for government. And governments that fail to punish evil and to let evil go, and God forbid encourage evil to persist or even to thrive, are in direct opposition to God's intention for government. God wants to punish evil so that it doesn't precipitate. But God also wants to praise those who do good. God wants governments to punish evil, to protect people, and praise those who do good, to point them in the right direction. Praising those who do good in God's economy. Praising those who are doing good in God's eyes. Praising those who do good the way God has ordained in a particular culture or society or any culture or society. And this, again, also is God's design for government. And governments that fail to praise those who do good in God's economy also are in direct opposition to God's design for government. God has designed government to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good and to create order in any society. Now, look, I know that many of you are saying in the back of your minds, well, <laughs> what do we do when we're, we're under a government that's calling good evil and evil good? Like, what do we do when the, when the government praises evil and punishes good? What then? And I think that's actually a really, really good question. And we're going to get to it in a moment. But for now, what does it mean for the Lord's sake? It means 
It means for the sake of the order the Lord wants in the world, but it also means something else. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For the sake of what? For the sake of the witness that the Lord wants in the world. Not just for the sake of the order that the Lord wants in the world, and he wants the order in the world. For his glory and for your good, for our good. For the sake of the witness that the Lord wants in the world. Listen, slander may have been the most common form of Christian persecution in Peter's day. And it is likely, it probably is, essentially is, the most common form of Christian persecution in our day in America. Slander, right? Christians are intolerant. Christians are against progress. Christians are threatening our way of life. And Peter believed that sincere submission of Christians, as much as they can, would help put this to rest and protect the reputation of Jesus in some way. And I think here is the principle. We, we don't want our failure to submit to our governing authorities on something we can submit on to be the reason that our fellow citizens reject Jesus. Now, ultimately, they reject Jesus because they want to reject Jesus. Ultimately, they reject Jesus, as we already learned from 1 Peter, because they stumble over what he says. But we don't want this to be one of the reasons. You're saying, okay, okay, all this makes sense, even if I don't like it. It's in the Bible. It makes sense, even if I don't like all of it. But are there limits to our submission to governing authorities? Like governments that make decrees calling evil good and good evil. Matt, you said that wisdom says to submit to our government as much as you can. And you've emphasized that as much as you can a couple of times. So are you saying there's lines? Are you saying there's limits for how we should submit to our government? And what I would say, I think from the Bible is absolutely yes. Yes, there are lines. And yes, there are limits to our submission to our government. Our submission to our government is to be not only led by the phrase, for the sake of the Lord, but it's also to be limited by, for the sake of the Lord. It's to be led by it, but also limited by it. We're to follow the lead of Jesus in being the kinds of people that are willing to submit to our governing authorities. But there are also limits to our su submission. We could never be submitted as Christians to a government that tells us to do something that Jesus has told us not to do. And we could never as Christians be submitted to a government that tells us not to do something that Jesus has clearly told us to do. And Peter knows this from personal experience. If you read in um, Acts chapter 4, you, you know the story of Peter and John. And they are out preaching, they're out healing, they're out teaching in Jesus' name. And the governing authorities of their day to come and tell them, stop it. Jesus has already told them, go into all the world, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're in Jerusalem, and they're preaching, and they're teaching. They're doing exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do, and the governing authorities are commanding them not to do that. And Peter stands up with John and says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And some of you go, well, that's one example. Like, we are supposed to submit in everything. And I would just say, well, the next chapter, the very next chapter, 
you know, just in case the early church under the Roman government just didn't get it, and just in case Christians like us, 2,000 years removed, don't get this principle, the very next chapter in Acts chapter 5, the same thing happens. But Peter now and all the apostles are out preaching and teaching and healing and doing their ministry. They're obeying Jesus and what Jesus has commanded them to do. And the authorities are saying, don't do what Jesus commanded you to do. And Peter rose up above all the disciples and said, we must obey God rather than men. And Peter did this because he knew that God's people had a long history of these kinds of things. He knew that the, the Hebrew midwives did not kill the little baby boys in Exodus chapter 1 when Pharaoh said to kill them. He knew that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3 would say, we're not bowing down to your idol. He knew that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, when the decree was made that you can't pray to anyone other than to the emperor, basically, at the time. And Daniel said, yep, I'm not doing that. I'm praying three times a day like I always have, facing Jerusalem. I'm, I'm, I am going to do what God has told me to do. And the principle here, I believe, is that we submit to government except when it commands us to sin, either by omission or by commission. If the government says, don't do something that Jesus is telling us to do, we're saying, yeah, no, we're doing that. Or if the government says, you can't do that thing that Jesus has told us to do, we're saying, no, we're doing it. Because Jesus is our highest authority. We're not going to sin against Jesus to submit to our government. We should not obey the governing authorities when they mandate things that keep us from doing what is right in God's eyes or cause us to do what is wrong in God's eyes. And our government has given us plenty of opportunities of late. Okay, you might say, I get all of this. Again, even if I don't like it, but doesn't submission to the governing authorities, though, like rob us of some of our freedom? I mean, even if we submit to the government as much as we can, doesn't that rob us of our freedom that we have in Christ? And, and Matt, you say all the time that Jesus has forgiven us to, to forgive us and to, and to free us to live the life that he has for us. We shouldn't be hampered by that, should we? I think that Christians in Peter's day were likely asking the same question because... <laughs> They had much less political freedom than we did, and so losing any of their freedom would, would sort of be exponential in terms of the, the freedoms that we would lose with any decision here or there. I think they were very astute to this idea. And Peter knows it, and I think this is why Peter says in verse 16, live as people who are free. Praise God. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think the second thing we learned this morning is that wisdom says true freedom is the freedom to serve. True freedom is the person that has so much freedom that they say, I am free to serve. Christians are the freest people that there are. Christians should be the freest people that they are. Village Church, we should be the freest people in the world. We are Christians, and on top of that, we are Americans. We have a ton of freedom. The people in this room, as Christians, should be the freest people in the world. 
not because we're Americans, but because we're Christians. The Bible says we are free from the law. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As Christians, we are free from having to obey all of the points of the law perfectly. We can never do it. That is so much bondage. This week, a, a guy from our church invited me to play golf and on an afternoon, and we played, and we played with a guy from Italy. It was awesome. His accent was incredible. He was really funny, and, um, and we enjoyed playing together, and we're sharing the gospel with him. And he grew up in Italy. He grew up into a Roman Catholic, Italian uh, paradigm, and we were just talking to him about the bondage, and he was saying, I fear God. I'm afraid of God. I'm always worried about if what I'm going to do is wrong. One little thing, and then he's going to smite me. Like, there is no freedom in religion and religious systems, and we are free from the law. We are free from all of its mandates because Christ has done that for us. As Christians, we are free. We're also free from sin, for sin will not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. You don't have to sin. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us, and when we are tempted to sin, we don't have to sin. We're free from the law, we're free from sin, it's amazing. And on the other side, we're free from guilt when we do sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Christian, you are free. Free from the law and its standards. Free from sin. You don't have to sin. And when you do, you're free from guilt. How much free, more free can we possibly be? We're the freest people in the world. But our freedom from the law and sin and guilt... It does not include freedom from serving. Even serving governments and governing officials through willing submission as much as we can. Peter David says it this way, freedom is not released from bondage to a state of autonomy. We all want that. As Americans, oh my gosh, we want that so bad. But released from bondage to become a slave of God. Only in God's joyful slavery is there true freedom. I say, well, Matt, I'm a little afraid now if submission is our default disposition toward government, would that same standard be applied to everyone? Is that like our default disposition toward everyone, to submit to everyone? Would the same logic apply? I'm sure the Christians in Peter's day were asking the same question. It's a good question. And so Peter addresses it in verse 17 where he says, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And the last thing we see this morning is that wisdom says to fear God, love other Christians, and honor everyone. You might say, well, Matt, shouldn't Christians love everyone? Yes. But these are the categories that, that Peter is giving us to, to help us see this clearly in terms of some kind of hierarchy, if there is one, or some kind of order. I made a little slide that I saw in one of the commentaries, and it, it shows this idea that the highest responsibility we have is to fear God. And right after that is to love the brother. That's to love other Christians with an unconditional love, whatever political party they're part of. 
And then we're to honor everyone and honor the emperor because he's everyone. He's on the same plane as everyone else. He's not higher and he is not lower. Wisdom says to fear God, love other Christians, and honor everyone. Wisdom says, he says, honor everyone. That word honor means to fix the value of. And everyone has the value that they have because they're created in the image and likeness of God with dignity and value and worth. And so honor everyone, every person, every politician, every pundit, every person from every party, every neighbor, you know, from every place that speaks every first language or second language, every color skin, every ethnicity, every race, every gender, male, female, let me make that clear, every social economic group, everyone. Honor everyone. Because everyone's created in the image and likeness of God. Wisdom says to love other Christians, which literally means love without condition. Love all Christians. Love Republican Christians. Love Democrat Christians. Love independent Christians. Love Green Party Christians. You know? Love Libertarian Christians. Love Christians despite their political affiliation with an unconditional kind of love. This is how Jesus, in fact, said we, they would know that we're his disciples when we love one another. And there's no Christian that deserves more or less love because they have a different political view than we do. They're loved by God without condition, and they should be loved by us without condition. Wisdom says to fear God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. To be in awe of God, it means the God of the Bible, to be in awe of the God of the Bible. And let me just say, he is the only person that we're supposed to be in awe of. We are not to be in awe of the emperor. And we are not to be in awe of a governor. Most of us probably aren't in awe of the HOA association. Okay, I get it. But we are not to be in awe of those people that they're going to put up for us pretty soon. They're going to put those people up, and the debates are going to happen, and they're going to put them up, and they're going to put up the polls, and we're going to gravitate to one side or another, and we are not to be in awe of those people. Awe is reserved for God alone. So we fear God, and we honor the emperor. And that word honor is the same honor that he used when he said honor everyone. The value that everyone has the value of the emperor is the value, same value as everyone else. The emperor has no more value than everyone else, and he has no less value than everyone else. The person at the top in our political system has no more value than anyone else and no less value than anyone else. And Peter's making that abundantly clear by the way he bookends this verse. One commentator said it this way, Jesus also made a distinction between God and Caesar. Remember when Jesus said, render the things that are Caesar's to Caesar and things are God, God? Jesus made a distinction between God and Caesar, but this did not mean disdain for Caesar. That one was a little convicting. Maybe a lot. The emperor was human, just like everyone else which means he did not deserve, and no emperor deserves, and no person at the top deserves unquestioned approval. None of them. And none of them, none of them deserve ultimate reverence. Only God deserves unquestioned approval and ultimate reverence. I think ultimately this idea of submission is a gospel idea, don't you? 
mean, if you're a Christian, this makes sense to you, right? Like, Jesus, the Bible teaches, if you're not yet a Christian, the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he was the son of God um, who came from heaven to earth um, and that he lived a perfectly sinless life on our behalf and that in coming from heaven to earth that Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully man, fully God, meaning Jesus was equal to God the Father, but he chose to submit himself to the will of the Father, to come and to live a sinless life on my behalf and on your behalf, by the way, in the midst of an extremely corrupt political and governmental system, and ultimately submitted himself to the will of the Father, which included a corrupt political system contributing to his crucifixion. But as Christians, we don't believe that Jesus was crucified as a martyr. So if you're not yet a Christian, I want to make that really clear. Christians do not believe that Jesus was crucified as a martyr by a corrupt political system and government. As Christians, we believe what Jesus said about himself. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Jesus said, I lay it down on my own accord. I lay it down and I will take it back up again. Jesus was not crucified as a martyr, a political martyr. Jesus was crucified as a substitute for our sin. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is what Christians believe about Jesus because this is what the Bible teaches about Jesus. That Jesus lived a life we could never live, a life free from sin on our behalf. That Jesus died a death we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. And, and that God even used Jesus' willful submission to a very corrupt government to accomplish his purpose and that Jesus rose from death to prove who he was and to, to give us a life we can never have otherwise. I tell it to you all the time, to forgive us from our sin and to free us to live a life that we could never have without him. And this is the good news this morning for us, that Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father so we can be forgiven and free to be submitted to him. Even the things that he teaches us about what it means to be submitted to our government. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Jesus, thank you for being such a great example to us of what it means to be submitted. Thank you for submitting yourself to the Father and accomplishing our salvation. Thank you that it was much more than your example you were a substitute, not just an example, but thank you that you were a substitute and an example. That you are a substitute for sin above everything. But you're an incredible, the most incredible example of submission for us. So Jesus, we just thank you and we declare to you that we love you and we want to be submitted to you. We want to be submitted to your teaching. We want to be submitted to your commands. We want to be submitted to all the things that you know are good and right and true that would give you glory and that would be for our good. Please help us. Please help me in this thing in particular. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.